Here we go. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I am Tim, and this is Susie, and we are Tim and Susie Garotti. And we've been married for almost 17 years. Um, we co-pastor here at Platte Park Church. We also own um, a small business called Sipping and Painting Together. And we also do real estate investing together. So we do a lot of things together. Um, if you would have asked me when I was 18, you know, what, would your, what is your life going to be like when you're in your 40s? You know, what was I thinking when I was 18? What was I imagining? Um, I don't think it has anything to do with the reality of today, which is a pretty amazing way God has woven the story together. But um, I started out, you know, at 18, thinking that I was going to get a degree in physical therapy, and that was going to be my career path. Um, but, you know, a couple years into college, and already I had changed, and I was now on a plan B, you know, or plan C, some different plan <laughs> of my life. And, um, and then I met this woman. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Look at that hair. I know. On Susie's both people. Got such curly hair. Those were the days of the band White Snake. <laughs> Whoever that was. Um, <laughs> so Susie and I started dating uh, my senior year. Susie's you could take that years. down now. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Such good memories. Um, one day when Susie and I were dating, uh, we went and studied at, in the library at a table across from each other. Um, and I said to Susie, I looked into her eyes and I said, um, can we just stare into each other's eyes forever? Aw. Do you Aww. know what Susie said? I said, it sounds great, but we need to run outward in the same direction. <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> so we've been running outward ever since. <laughs> um, but how about you? Would you do an activity with me? Would you stand up? Stand up. I know this is um, like forced family fun right now for you all. All right. So just imagine in your life when you were 18, imagine what you were thinking when you were 18 about the age that you are at today. Get that in your mind. Uh, maybe you were applying for jobs and just hoping to get a job, and now you are still at that job today, which would be really amazing. Or maybe you were getting into college and starting a degree path, or maybe you joined the military and that was your path. Um, what were you doing at 18, and what were you thinking about for the age that you were at today? You have that in your mind, thinking about that? All right. So if you had plan A as an 18-year-old, if you in your life have deviated in any way from that plan and something different has happened, sit down. <laughs> if you, if you um, are doing exactly plan A that you were at 18, stay standing. Wow, that's pretty, pretty huge. Thank you, Chi-Chi, for representing the one. That's good. But isn't it interesting, this is culturally relevant, I think, that culturally we are living such lives that aren't, we don't always know what we're going to be, be doing in the future. But also, this is a great example of God shaping and directing our lives, which um, sometimes when we're 18, we don't always know what's best for our lives. But <coughs> Susie and I, when we were dating, so jumping, you know, maybe when we were 21, probably when we started dating, um, we had this hope in our mind of doing ministry together, that our work would be aligned in ministry together. 
And back then, we didn't have necessarily models to think through all that, so we probably just imagined we'd both be working at different things, um, <coughs> but both be in ministry. Um, we also probably had a very idealistic hope, <laughs> you know, those kind of 21-year-old hopes where you don't include any hard work, hardship, or hard times <laughs> in those future <laughs> plans. Um, but it's amazing that you just think when you're 21, there's going to be no bumps in the road. Uh, nobody told us, or maybe somebody told us, we just didn't, wouldn't listen, that the road, not only is it not bumpy, but at times it's just going to stop, and you're going to have to create <laughs> the road. And um, we are fascinating by how our lives have developed because we never would have imagined in our wildest dreams yeah. in that picture um, where God has brought us through hardships and through the joys. Yeah. So um, last week, Charlie talked about um, this picture that he drew. Um, which I could not recreate in such a good way, so here it is. But this idea that when we come to God and there's this first love and you're, the arrow of you to God is big and you have that just connection to God where you're like first time receiving God's love, experiencing it, you're excited, you're just all in and committed, you're consumed by your relationship with God. And then Charlie said, you know, here's reality sets in second picture where there's lots of other arrows coming off your life and maybe your arrow to God is thinner because you're sharing bandwidth with your kids and your wife and your career and your vocation and all these other demands on you and this picture I think is very interesting um, because it speaks to what are you being faithful to you know you have to be faithful to your kids and your wife in order for life to go well and to be like good and you also have to remain faithful to God. So back when Susie and I were dating, we had a book title idea that we've not yet written, but maybe someday. But we had this great idea for a book called Keeping Your First Love When Falling in Love. Ah, it's a good book. Um, but it really is about this idea of keeping your first love for God, keeping your arrow of faithfulness to God while you are adding other arrows to your life. It's about faithfulness, keeping your first love for God, staying on course with God, being faithful to him, receiving God's faithfulness into your own life, and then being able to give that kind of faithful faithfulness to people around you, your spouse, your parents, your kids, your friends, your boss, so on. So since we want to make this a book-writing empire, we've got other books that we're ready to write. Um, after keeping your first love and falling in love, we've got keeping your first love when starting your career. Um, it's also an arrow of life. Keeping your first love when having a family. That's very challenging. Um, keeping your first love when entering retirement. We aren't yet prepared for that, but we're hoping we'll be prepared for that and to write that book as well. Um, so you get the idea that this phrase, first love, is about being faithful to God as you add other arrows to your life. And that phrase, first love, comes from the book of Revelation. Um, the angel of the Lord, speaking to the church of Ephesus, gave them this correction and encouragement and said this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Isn't that interesting? You have forsaken your first love. You know, we don't get much explanation for the church of Ephesus here in this passage of what happened. You know, we know that something happened that they were just 
enthralled by the love of God. They received it. They took it in. They were fully consumed by it. It was energizing their life, and it was transforming their lives. And then something happened. Something changed. We don't know necessarily here what changed, but God, God is calling them back to that first love. You know, maybe something came along that just simply distracted them, and it was an arrow that they just put their time and attention into. Maybe it was just the oppression of life and the burden of life that was happening at that time that squeezed their first love out. Something happened that they forsook their first love, and here they're being called back to that. I think it's really fascinating because it's something that resonated with us then and still resonates with us now of keeping our faithfulness to God, keeping that a priority as we add other arrows to our lives. So if godly faithfulness is keeping your kind of attention on God and that first love on him as you add someone or something to your life, um, that idea is something we need to carry in every phase of life. So something for Susie and I that as we've kind of tried to establish in our relationship, we've tried to maintain space for each of us to have priority of relationship with God and to seek that on our own and to do that together um, so that we can nurture this relationship with God so that our souls can be nourished by God first and then we can meet each other. Um, early in our marriage, one of our mentors said to us, um, Susie, Tim can't meet all your needs. And he said, Tim, Susie can't be your everything. You know, that is God's role. That's, that's something only God can do in meeting those deep needs. And so then you can meet and receive from God, and then you can meet each other in that. So we've tried to attempt to cultivate godly faithfulness by encouraging each other to develop a life with God. But where this um, comes to play the most, I think, mm -hmm. is, when, is when we have conflicting emotions. Um, I remember when my dad died, mm -hmm. um, Susie and I grieved very differently. Mm -hmm. And that was an important time to figure out and give space for each person um, to have different emotions. Um, yes, it's challenging. Because it's that spot where Susie had to accept the way I was grieving, my sadness, my anger, my frustration. And she had to let me have that. And I also had to let her have her grieving and her experience of that, which was different than my own. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those moments where Susie had to trust God that God was mending my heart. God was doing some work in me, and God was leading me forward. And she also had to trust me and to believe that I would be faithful to God. That even though my emotions were kind of crazy and maybe seemed like I was going off the rails, she had to trust that I would be faithful to God and stay on track with him. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, this series we're calling, you know, Married or Single, Exposing the Myth and Miracle of Intimacy. And when we talk about intimacy, really we're talking about a relationship that is a full reveal where you can say to another person, I trust all of me to you. I, I hold nothing back. So to have intimacy, you have to have trust. And you really cannot have trust without faithfulness. You will not trust someone who's unfaithful. Mm 
And so when we talk about godly faithfulness, we're really talking about the kind of faithfulness that develops an environment of trust where intimacy can grow and flourish, where you can say to another person, I trust all of me to you. I hold nothing back because I trust you totally because I uh, am safe in your faithfulness. When it comes to this subject, um, you know, of faithfulness with each other, we're also talking about experiencing God's faithfulness in our lives. And uh, when I think about faithfulness to God, I think about our brothers and sisters around the world who follow Christ in oppressive situations, much more difficult situations than often you and I face on a, a daily basis. And just the example they are to us, um, sometimes it can seem, you know, uh, in American Christianity, like we get a paper cut and we're ready to throw in the towel. And then you read stories around the world that just sober you and inspire you and go, whoa, wow. I read one this week about um, a Pakistan church uh, back in 2013. And on a Sunday morning, this church in Pakistan, uh, there were two uh, explosives that went off. Two suicide bombers went into All Saints Church. 127 men, women, and children were killed. Uh, 250 wounded. And uh, because the area of that church, the Christians were the minority, they were under great opposition. So the people in that church could not get good work in that community. Uh, pretty much all of them were garbage collectors. Um, and there was just no safety net whatsoever when that happened. There's no social services, no social security, no safety net for their wounds, for their funerals. Um, Sunday morning that happens. On Monday morning, the day after that bombing, the people of the church came back and gathered all of the Sunday school papers that had been spread around after the explosion they gathered up the shoes of children whose lives had been lost so they could give them to children in need. And then the people of that church washed the walls of the blood of family and friends. And as they did, even the secular reports in that community said that the wails of agony pierced the silence of the indifferent neighborhood around them. And then when they had cleaned the walls, they set up the pews. And they sat down. And together they sang praises to God. And I share that story because we're talking about faithfulness. And sometimes our international brothers and sisters in Christ around the world just know an experience of faithfulness that is inspiring and sobering. Here is, I think, the myth that we often believe living in the West regarding faithfulness. We often believe or buy into this myth that says, like, godly faithfulness means remaining committed as long as the relationship is working for me. So you'll hear people say, it's just not working for me anymore. And we buy into a myth that says that Godly faithfulness means remaining committed to people, whether that's friends, romantic relationship, remaining committed as long as the relationship is working for me. 
in my relationship with God. As long as God is doing what I want him to do, I remain committed. But when he doesn't, I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know if I want to follow him anymore. This is the myth that we buy into. What's the miracle of faithfulness? The miracle is that God is faithful through all the seasons of our lives, even when we are unfaithful. Because here's the thing, he's not, primar- he's not a protecting God. He's a transforming God. And he is using everything in our lives to form us into the image of his son. So we learn faithfulness from God as we turn to him in every season of our lives. If we want to develop the kind of relationships where intimacy can flourish, there has to be faithfulness and trust. That's where intimacy comes from and is born and can grow. But we only know that this way when we first experience it vertically this way. Psalm 117 says, Praise God, everybody. Applaud God, all people. His love has taken over our lives. God's faithful ways are eternal. So one translation of this says, For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So that's the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant love. It's not affection. It's not romantic feelings. It's a prior commitment to another. It is not conditional. It is not contractual. It's not, I love you if you love me. It's not, I love you as long as this is working for me. It is the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. So if we want to know intimacy, we have to come to know trust. And the only sure and consistent place where we experience trust is the faithfulness of God in every season of life, where we come no matter where we are, and we know with him and only him, are you fully known, fully loved, no fear of rejection? And that shapes the kind of people who can, in turn, be faithful to one another. in his book, Marriage Builder, asks the question, who meets my needs? And he says that everyone has needs for significance and for security. And we bring that question, who meets my needs? And we bring it to our spouses, our friends, our bosses, our jobs, our hobbies. And sometimes that question grows from a place of innocent, who meets my needs, to more of a demand of, Meet my needs, now. (laughs) Um, Trev begins his book with this example. A man in his middle 40s complained to me that his wife was cold, angry, and argumentative. I interrupted his recitation of her faults to say, it sounds as if you think that because your wife is failing you so badly, you are therefore justified in your bitter attitude toward her. The Bible, however, instructs you to love your wife, though she, though she may be thoroughly disagreeable, to love her the way Christ loves his people. He was incredulous. Wait a minute. Maybe I am supposed to love her. I'm sure I should, but I need a little love and respect, too. She's giving me nothing but criticism and a cold shoulder, and you tell me to love her? Who's going to meet my needs? 
And for this man, the solution to his problem, he thought was obvious. If she changes, then she can meet his needs. But what he's missing, and what the book talks about, is how he first needs to go to God, receive the love, the security, the significance from God, then he can approach his wife. Well, and this is the dilemma of needs. You know, I have needs, Susie has needs, and sometimes those needs are, like, work together. Like, Susie has a need, and I have some space to, like, meet it. But other times, those needs are going in opposite directions from each other. And those are the moments, especially, when we need to create space for God in our lives. You know, godly faithfulness is bringing ourselves to God, receiving from him, being comforted by him, being directed and led by him. Godly faithfulness is going to God as our Lord. Unfaithfulness? Unfaithfulness is going to your spouse or to your parents or your friends or your work or your hobby and asking those things to meet those deep needs. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Susie talked about (coughs) wishes, hopes, and dreams and used these jars that in life we all have wishes, hopes, and dreams. And those are just natural things and good things that are in us. And there's correct and right places to share those wishes, hopes, and dreams with your spouse, with your friends, with others. But sometimes wishes, hopes, and dreams, maybe in a negative way, just get dumped over into our expectations jar. And then we just hand that jar over. You will meet my needs. These expectations are yours to take care of. And in thinking about this over the past couple weeks, I've been fascinated by how this happens so easily. We just hand those expectations over and they become demands. But also how we can have these wishes, hopes, and dreams and carry them inside and then bring them to God and hand them over to God. Because he's the one who can do something with those needs in our heart. So how do we bring ourselves to God? How do we do it? Well, as I've thought about this, one thing I think is that when you feel that twinge of something in you, of insecurity or fear, wanting significance or anger, when you feel that inside of you, you know, rather than taking that and immediately running over to your spouse and dumping it on your spouse or on your friends, instead of that, bring it to God. And how do we bring it to God? But through prayer. So it might be the the practice of prayer where you put yourself in a body position of prayer. Sit at a table, fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes, and imagine yourself walking into the throne room of God and for God to be welcoming you in and so glad to see you and for you to then take that hurt, that pain, that insecurity, that fear, and just bring it to him and hand it to him and explain the situation to him and hand it over. And in exchange, receive from God what you need back. Maybe to receive love where you're feeling not loved. Maybe to receive love in place of anger or hurt. Maybe to receive something that will give you security in that moment. That is only from God and only provided by God. To make that exchange through prayer with God. Interesting, because the Apostle Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. says, love always protects, always trusts, 
always hopes and always perseveres. And I don't know about you, but when I read that list, I think, okay, always protects. It's kind of on the lover side. Um, always hopes, okay, that you can do yourself, always persevere, but always trusts. Doesn't that have to do with the other person? And it's interesting because a lot of people say always trusts could even be translated better, always believes. So what does it mean? Always trusts, always believes. When it comes to this conversation, what is godly faith, faithfulness? Always trusts, always believes. So just very practically for a moment, um, I want to talk about how there are times in every relationship, not just romantic relationships, where you have an expectation. You do. We all do. And uh, they seep into our relationships in all sorts of different ways. And sometimes there is a gap between what your expectation is and what you experience. So maybe he said, you know, on a small level, he said he'd be home at 5 and it's 5.30. She said she'd watch the kids starting at 8 and where is she? He said he was going to make dinner tonight. Grocery shopping hasn't even been done. She said she was going to tell so-and-so X, Y, and Z didn't happen. Practically speaking, in relationships, all relationships, there are just times where whatever you thought was going to happen and what actually happened are two different things. And that can be small things or that can be big things. Uh, but every single time this happens, here is the thing we have to think about when we think about this idea that love always trusts, that love always believes. Every time that happens, you have a choice. It might not feel like it's a choice, but it is a choice. Every single time there is a gap between what you expected and what you experienced, you have a choice. And your choice is you can either believe the best or you can assume the worst. And each and every time there is that gap in a relationship, you get to decide, you get to choose. What is going to go in that gap? Will you believe the best about the other, or will you assume the worst? So um, believing the best is going to say, in that moment when there's a gap, um, he's not, he said he was going to be home at 5, he's not home, but I'm sure when he gets home, there will be a good explanation, and I'll understand more then. Assuming the worst would be when there is a gap, to say to yourself, oh, there he goes again. I expected this would happen. She always spends money like that. He never is home on time. Assume the worst. So the habit of happy couples, the habit of relationships that become intimate and deep for the long haul is that they become people who believe the best over and over and over again until they cannot believe the best anymore. Happy couples, people who make it for the long haul, not just because they were gutting it out, but because they truly still enjoy each other, made it a habit when there's a gap to believe the best. 
about the other and not to assume the worst. There's an interesting study, uh, Marcus Buckingham's book, One Thing You Need to Know, it's a leadership book, but he talks in that book about a 20-year-long study of couples who stayed together for the long haul and were still enjoying each other. They had a happy relationship. They were, and uh, this was all across Europe, Canada, America, all these different, it was a 20-year-long study of couples. And uh, it was interesting, when they entered that study, they had some assumptions. Uh, they were looking for what's the common denominator between these people who had these satisfying relationships for the long haul. Not people who stuck together for the sake of the kids, not people who stayed together because they couldn't afford to split up, but people who truly enjoyed each other over the long haul. And uh, they came to the study looking for a common denominator, and they expected, they had an assumption, they expected that the couples, the two people, the partners, would have lowered their expectations of one another. They thought that over time they would have just said, like, she's really not that great. <laughs> He's not as great as I thought. And so by modifying and lowering their expectations, they could stay with each other for a long time. That's what they expected to find. Do you know what they actually found? They found the exact opposite to be true. This is very fascinating. They asked each person a bunch of questions about themselves and then about their partner. And what they found over and over and over again in these couples is that the person believed and ranked their partner better than their partner was ranking and rating themselves. That time and time again, these happy couples who made it for the long haul, they actually believed that their partner was better than what their partner believed about themselves as it pertained to character and virtue and all these different things. Very fascinating study. So they, they described it like it's like this upward spiral of love. <laughs> kind of a funny phrase, but they said it worked like this. There was an illusion that created a conviction. They believed the best. And that conviction led to a sense of security in the relationship. Well, when you're secure, when you feel secure, when you feel like the other person believes the best even more than you do, it creates an environment, security fostered intimacy. And that intimacy fostered love. They said in this sense, you could say there's a point where it's true that love really is blind. And so at the end of this study, one of their summations, one of their recommendations was this. They said, the recommendation, find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and believe it. Believe the best. Because love always trusts. Love always believes. Now, I'm not naive, and I want to talk for just a moment about those times when trust is shattered. Maybe it is through an affair or abuse or addiction. But I want to talk for a minute about when trust is shattered, when deceit and lies shatter a relationship. When that happens, 
everything has to stop. All other talking has to stop until that is resolved. When there is deception and lies in a relationship, there's, there is nothing that can be done until that is resolved. A total timeout has to take place at that moment. Henry Cloud says this, many people are too quick to trust someone in the name of forgiveness and not make sure that the other is producing fruit in keeping with repentance. To continue to open yourself up emotionally to an abusive or addicted person without seeing true change, he says, is foolish. Forgive, but guard your heart until you see sustained change. Couples can recover from deception. People can recover from deceit. But here is why everything must stop until that is resolved. Because when you experience betrayal, there is a lot of pain that comes from betrayal. And that pain is only, there's one of two paths it's going to take. It is either going to be transformed, your pain is either going to be transformed by God to a place where you can believe the best again. Or that pain from that betrayal, from that deception, from those lies, that pain is going to get transferred. It's either going to get transformed or it's going to get transferred. It's going to get passed on to your kids, to your friends, to your family, to your next relationship. Which is why, you know, there's so many times when people who are so dear to me, you know, go through something devastating, and I almost just want to say, like, just, like, don't even, don't even date for five years or two years. I mean, I would say five years, but I know it would never happen, so two years. Just simply because it's like that pain, like, let God transform that so that you can be a person who believes the best again. Otherwise, it's going to get transmitted to the people you love. It's going to get transferred. It's going to get passed on. And you don't want that to happen. Now, just for a minute, if you are the betrayer, and, you know, in a smaller sense, we're all betrayers. Because we're all self-deceiving and deceiving each other all the time. So in a lesser sense, this is the work of confession all the time, every week. This season of Lent we're in, we remember we're dust. We remember how desperately we need God's forgiveness and purifying and cleansing all the time. Because holy, holy, holy are you, God. Woe is me. Like a person of unclean lips. Like that's all I can say in the face of your glory and goodness and holiness is woe is me. So in a lesser sense, we're all there. But just to the person who is experiencing that moment of, I'm the betrayer here. I have been the one to deceive. I have been the one to lie. Can I just say, when you and I find ourselves in that place, if you find yourself there today, you have the opportunity to experience the gospel like at no other time. 
Because the scriptures say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when you are flat on your face, full of your shame and your sin and your remorse and your regrets, you have the opportunity to let God love you there, meet you there in your shame, not after you clean up your act, right there to step into the light, to step into the truth, to acknowledge and to own and to allow yourself to die with Christ and be raised with him to new life. Like that's the gospel. That is where the power for resurrection living, the power for living differently than you've lived before, that's where it comes from. When you actually experience that, I am dying with Christ. I'm being raised to new life. He could overcome death. He can overcome anything in our lives, any addiction, anything. And so you have the opportunity to experience the power of God's love and forgiveness and strength in your life like no other time. And that is a very, very... uh, precious and holy place. Godly faithfulness is it's cultivated in us when we turn to the one, the only faithful one in every season of our lives. And as we just practice over the course of a lifetime, we just practice falling into his goodness. We're just, just falling into his goodness over and over and over again. And it's there that we learn what faithfulness looks like. And then over time, we can become the kind of people who are faithful to others because we have firsthand experienced the one and only spot where we're fully known, fully loved, no fear of rejection. And then we become those kind of people who can turn around and extend that to to others. You want to take wrap it up? Take it, take us home. <laughs> I'd actually like to invite Charlie and the band up because they've prepared a special song for us to listen to and to reflect during the song. And in your program is an insert um, with on one side just a variety of emotions. And sometimes the first step to knowing Christ, that what she said, that first step of receiving the gospel today in this moment is knowing where you are at. And when you know where you are at, then you can bring that to God and receive something from him. So as you have that sheet of paper and you can look over those emotions, you can circle one that represents where you are at today. Or you could write one in and put your own stamp on that. And then during the song, bring that emotion to God and hand it to him and receive back what he has to give to you. Perhaps it's a difficult emotion and you are angry and you're bringing anger to God, and ask God to give you love and to fill your heart with love. Or maybe it's a a positive emotion. Maybe you're filled with joy and excitement this morning. And that is a place to bring to God your celebration and to celebrate with God this morning. Well, this is an opportunity for you to meet with God and listen to this.